something like critical race theory is essentially not that dissimilar from the Jews are running the world, which is why they have were disproportionately represented in good positions. Well, it's the whites are running the world, and um, there's also a kind of associated blood libel. Whites are responsible for everything. They've got all their advantages because of all the Ill, ills their ancestors visited uh, on minorities, and therefore they benefit from white privilege, and they're reproducing subconsciously. Somehow, this matrix of structural oppression, we may not be able to measure it, but boy, it's there. Uh, so these kind of shadowy pseudoscientific theories have now entered in, in a big way into diversity training in organizations, but also into uh, critical race theory and uh, radical gender ideology in the classroom. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro, and with me is the well-established white privilege uh, expert. Uh, not because he cares about the subject, because he has it. He has a lot of it. Uh, Ricky Allpike. How are you, Ricky? Yeah, it's my, it's my lived experience. The whole white privilege thing, you know. <laughs> That's woke jitsu. You just did woke jitsu to me because I said you had white privilege and you said that's my lived experience. That's a great move. Um, excellent work. Well, perhaps we can learn some woke jitsu today from a return guest, Eric Kaufman. Uh, he's come back to talk to us all about critical race theory uh, in schools, uh, which sounds, well, I'm glad to be talking to him, but it sounds dreadful. So. Yes. I, he, he's an optimistic guy, so hopefully he can uh, walk us off the ledge. Now, before we start our interview, I wanted to highlight a recent milestone for us and this show. <coughs> Happy 200th birthday, John. We've reached the 200 episode mark. <laughs> it's not every day you turn 200, so I'd like you to reflect on our 200 episodes and this momentous occasion. What have you got for me? Well, I'd like to commend you first on your prop. Uh, that <laughs> obviously set you back a few dollars. So don't let anybody no, say No, I stole it from my son. Oh, okay. That's good. good. That's a, I appreciate that. Well, I just, uh, you know, ha had to think about our guests over the last 200 episodes and just, just some of the qualities that perhaps I'd like to work on. I can't tell what anyone else to in, tell you what to do, for instance, or what uh, anyone else they should be doing in their lives. But I think number one for me was reading. Most of our guests do a lot of reading. And this leads me to believe that they've structured their lives in a way to make more time to read. This means looking at where you're wasting time, social media probably, um, yeah. and, and other distractions. Uh, I remember distinctly uh, having more time to read before smartphones and, and social media. So maybe we should be trying to get some of that back and be a bit more disdainful of social media as well. Uh, clarity yeah. of thought. Uh, we've spoken to people who have uh, thought long and hard about, about difficult problems. They've defined the issues and, and can usually articulate themselves quite well uh, uh, about complex topics and the many facets of, of whatever issue it is. They also don't weigh into areas that they feel they're not ready to uh, or into issues that are completely outside their speciality. So I think a great example would be Helen Joyce, probably... The clarity of her of her thought, uh, on, uh, it's like a Swiss watch. Yeah. You know, she can see every facet of the, of the problem. And I think that's that's just where I want to get to because, you know, uh, I find a lot of time uh, I'm catching up. My brain's catching up with what's being said. Well, I've learned that 200 episodes gets you about 650 Instagram followers. Oh. Didn't you, didn't you just get banned? We, we do have a 90-day ban, yes, but that's, that's, uh, that's a story for another time. Conservatives are nice if you give them a chance. Calculating time zones with daylight savings is a ball ache, and listening is harder than you think. That's all, that's all good stuff. I'm sure everyone's going to love all of that. 
Um, and just finally, uh, <laughs> courage and integrity. <laughs> I think our guests are all unified in, in that day. They've got go courage and integrity. They stand up to bullies uh, and to ideologies that they, that they believe are wrong, especially ones that sound really caring or, the, or, uh, or nice or the ones that are backed by the elites. So that's pretty much everyone. You know, on on uh, all of our guests are, are, are standing very up principled. For they are principled, standing up for something, um, and uh, and so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna work on on those things for the next 200 episodes. Okay. All jokes aside, I just want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in week after week. John and I really appreciate the support that you give us, and I just hope that we can continue to cover interesting topics with interesting guests for a long time to come. Speaking of interesting, here's Eric Kaufman. Return guest Eric Kaufman is a professor of politics at Burbank College, University of London. He first appeared on this show in May 2022. That's episode 108. He is the author of three books, Rise and Fall of Anglo-America, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth, and White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. He most recently authored a study into the impact of critical social justice ideology on American education, which came out in February 2023, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk a lot about. Eric, welcome back to The New Flesh. Great to be here. Thanks for having me back. Now, Eric, you, you actually have an interesting background, having spent your early childhood in Hong Kong, Japan and Canada. Uh, you now reside in the UK. Would you mind giving us a little insight into your, into your story? Yeah, absolutely. So my dad, who was in the Canadian uh, Embassy, well, Trade Commissioner Service in, in Hong Kong, where I was born, and then uh, we moved to Tokyo for about six years uh, before I sort of, and I went to international school at the tail end of that and then wound up in uh, Vancouver, uh, where I grew up. Um, and, and yeah, so that's kind of like some of the background. And then my interests in certainly, or I, I was also back in Japan for a couple of years, age 10 and 11. So yeah, I guess my interest in, in national identity uh, really began, begins from that experience of growing up as an international. Um, and, and, you know, you become more aware of, of who you are in a way nationally. Um, and then, yeah, this is sort of one of my key research interests as I, you know, then became an academic really in the you know, late 90s uh, and have followed that, that interest really right to the present. And also as it intersects with migration issues on the one hand, and then also ideology and ideological questions uh, around particularly the cultural left. Both of these forces, I think, are really reshaping the landscape around national identity uh, in the late 20th and then into the early 21st centuries. So, Eric, not to be too Freudian, but uh, do you think that your your broad experiences in these the, the different milieus and cultures shaped your current views you've already suggested they they have but i, I mean for example i know a little tiny little bit about japan and um i think about the stark cultural differences all the time uh you know by, by uh, being presented with another culture i find you, you're in you're forced to actively engage with your own and either sort of affirm or reject your own customs and beliefs does does that resonate with you yeah i think it does in the sense that if you you know if i was born in some part of Canada where everyone else was Canadian, I mean, it just wouldn't have, those questions probably wouldn't pop up as much as if you are, as you say, you know, forced to become aware of your national difference uh, from others, as well as in an international school environment where everyone else obviously uh, is proud of their particular national tradition. And so that just kind of awakens that uh, awareness a little bit earlier than it might 
in somebody else. Um, and it's been a phenomenon throughout history, so it's not a not an unusual phenomenon. Um, yeah, in, in a sense, I think, whereas I, if you were just born in a country, you would probably never have to, th to think about that question. Uh, and so it may be a less important question for you when it comes to becoming a researcher and how you think about yourself. And would you, we'll get, we'll get off our Barbara Walters section <laughs> soon. I just want to get to know you a little bit yeah, better, yeah. you know. <laughs> so, you know, is it too presumptuous to ask if you would describe yourself as, and this comes from David Goodhart, the idea of being a somewhere or an anywhere. So what do we say? The somewheres are people who are um, sort of rooted to a place and then the anywheres are, are, are sort of more global. Uh, it, I'm sure you could explain it better, but uh, how would you uh, describe yourself? Yeah, that's a really good <laughs> good question. I mean, I... I, I think it's a very useful typology. I know David very well, and I, you know. So I, I, however, I have some. Let's just say some modifications, right? So I'm clearly in anywhere in the sense of having been born abroad and traveled a lot and living in a different country where I'm from and, and being curious about the world. So, uh, but I think the the bigger difference, rather than whether you live 20 miles from where you're born, is more. It's more to do with psychology and. Um, do you sort of value, do you want, do you see value in the past, in the present, being continuous with the past? Do you prefer, uh, you know, do you see, you know, difference in your environment as more disorderly or do you see it as more interesting? And I think it is, you know, on those core psychological dimensions, probably I would lean a little bit more towards being a kind of status quo conservative and wanting to see value in maintaining things from the past. Even though my biography and my experience is certainly one of moving around and, and you know, I don't live very close to where I was born, clearly. Um, but I think this is more psychological, actually. And, and actually, if you look at, you know, if you ask people where they live compared to where they were born, I don't think that would be as good a predictor of some of these attitudes around, say, support for political positions, Brexit, etc., then a question such as, you know, do you think uh, things in Britain were better in the past? Uh, you know, why? That, those sorts of questions which psychologists use to tap these sort of deeper psychological preferences and dimensions, I, I think are actually closer to the truth of where the dividing lines are rather than just physically where you happen to be. I think uh, Ricky and I would have to agree with you because we grew up in the the literally the most isolated city in the world um just you know pretty much all white right <laughs> and um we're a bit embarrassed about about uh our our, our uh, upbringing which is a lot like neighbors actually the tv show from where uh, where is that out of the curiosity that's <laughs> uh, perth western Australia. oh perth okay yeah. okay i've never been there we get a fleeting mention in um, uh, Kill Bill, I think. All right. <laughs> so that's that's about as good as it gets. But yeah, so but we've moved elsewhere. But I still feel, uh, as you say, psychologically, you know, uh, you know, we've got the the this sort of the trappings or the or of of the anywhere. But we feel inside, we feel like somewheres. Yeah, I mean, they've done. I saw there was a survey, incidentally, in the U.S. just of people. Uh, whether they identify as more rural or with rural, I can't remember what it is, rural or urban. And regardless of where they actually, whether they lived in a big city or they lived in the countryside, that identification with one or the other mattered more, you know what I mean? So so you could live in a city but have more of that rural identity. That predicted 
you know, voting a certain way, right? So I think there is a, I agree, I think it's much more interior than it is exterior. Well, Eric, I, th- I think it's time to get our hands dirty. Uh, okay. It, it's, world, it's world pride in Sydney at the moment, and you, you just can't move for the rainbow flags that are everywhere. <laughs> so it, it's appropriate, appropriate that we ask you about a study you did, I, th- I think about a year back, uh, into the rise of LGBT as a social and political identity. Um, one stat that, that really jumped out at me was that if you are a very liberal white female student who supports shouting down speakers on campus, you have a 7 in 10 chance of identifying as LGBTQ. Uh, does this stat suggest that identifying as, as LGBT, uh, does that have more to do with your political affiliation than sexual orientation? Yeah, I think it does for those who are, particularly those in elite universities, um, you know, you have two sort of tracks towards identifying as LGBT. Now, this is much more common amongst women than men. The, the most, the, the category that's had the largest increase is, is bisexual, particularly amongst women. And I think to understand the rise in that category uh, amongst those in elite universities, then yes, politically being far left, holding a set of attitudes, which I would call cultural socialism, um, with regard to the harm that speakers might do and therefore the need to sort of de-platform them, uh, is predictive of um, being LGBT. And yeah, so I think there is a, a powerful relationship. Now, if we, t- if we look at sort of a less politicized group, sort of non-college educated African-American women, let's just say, I mean, they also have a reasonably high... LGBT identification. And there, I think what's going on is much more this broader trend of where this is seen as, you know, it adds to your cachet, particularly as a woman, if you say you're bisexual, etc. So I think it's kind of a distinguishing, like you can't just be boring old heterosexual, you've got to have something distinctive. And I think that's more the motivation, um, you know, outside that elite college milieu. But in the elite college milieu, there's no question that the correlations with political views are really strong. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting phenomenon. I mean, of course, one of the big questions I sought to ask was how to explain this you know, threefold increase in identification with LGBT since the late 2000s. This has been quite an explosion, though. That, that, so so I, th- I think the, the figure was, goodness, was, wasn't it, uh, didn't it go from... 10% or something, 33% or something ridiculous? Yeah, it's like a tripling, generally speaking, from around 5%. I mean, depending on the survey, some show it going from around 5 to 16, which is in the GSS. The gallops, it goes from like 8 to 22 or something. Other surveys have it as high as 30. You know, I've seen, and this is transatlantically. In the UK, I did a recent survey with YouGov of 18 to 20-year-olds. We got, I think, 29%. Uh, ticking an LGBT box and only like 61 ticking heterosexual with a few saying prefer not to say. But yeah, I mean, it's quite high. Um, <laughs> and there's been a, a, an absolute boom, right, in the last 10, 10 12 years. Um, and, and this bears now, of course, at the same time, we have a number of other things that have gone on. I mean, the, the most glaring thing is the big jump in uh, reporting of mental uh, health problems around anxiety in particular it has also kind of exploded in this period. Turns out these two things are highly correlated. Um, and how to make sense of that correlation is is one of the key issues that I looked at. You've said that um, 
The majority of females, this comes from the study, the majority of females identifying as bisexual have had zero female sexual partners and only male sexual partners. Eric, to me, this, now you come from a country now, you live in a country that has uh, pubs and we have something in Australia called the pub test uh, and no reasonable person at a pub uh, <laughs> would accept the notion that you can you can be bi and have had no sexual partners of the same sex. It's this is one of those. This is just. I mean, you're very diplomatic and you're doing all this this hard great work. But to me, I read this and I find this this kind of idea a little bit insulting and 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 um, frankly, a bit like something out of Alice in Wonderland. So uh, I'm I'm wondering if you if you think that these types of flimsy ideas that the the idea that you can be bi and have never been uh, remotely sexually interested or ever had any experience with someone of the same uh, sex. Th- these types of ideas, whether they are going to be on the w- whether they are on the way out, because to, it's a little offensive to people with real problems. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really interesting, right? I mean, I so luckily we have this data source, the uh, General Social Survey in the U.S., which asks about sexual partners. Um, and yeah, as you, you're right. So in the last, if you take something like over 60% of female bisexuals, people who identify themselves as bisexual um, on that survey have had only male uh, sexual partners in the last five years. That number of 60%, is, it's increased since about 2008 from like 20% of bisexuals saying they've had only male sexual partners to 60. So essentially you're getting a lot of conventionally heterosexual women choosing to identify as bisexual. I mean, that is the first phenomenon. So this is a identity thing, much more than a behavior thing. I mean, there's been a slight increase in, um, you know, homosexual behavior, but that's been pretty modest. Uh, that's that's kind of one thing that really jumps out is the, the and, and if we go back to a lot of the research on sexuality, I mean, there's particularly amongst women, young women, a certain spectrum. Uh, in the past, generally people who have, you know, fleeting and episodic same-sex attractions would not identify as bisexual or as lesbian or so on. Now, if anything, you know, a fleeting attraction is probably all you need to put yourself in that category. Um, And so that is a social change um, and it demands an explanation. I should also say one other thing, which is that the correlations with reporting uh, poor mental health you know, the if we take female bisexuals who identify as bisexual but have had no same-sex behavior, that is the group with that reports the highest proportion of mental health problems. Whereas LGBTQ women who have same-sex partners have a considerably lower um, re- reporting of mental health problems. It seems to me that so there is this correlation between having mental health problems and identifying as something you're kind of not. Now, what I can't, what is, what's hard to figure out is, is it that such people had mental health issues before they changed their identity to LGBT or does shifting their identity to LGBT cause them to have mental health issues? And it's very tricky. There was a survey, a study in Australia that showed as, as women transition from uh, heterosexual to LGBT and back again, their mental health moves, gets worse when they move into LGBT, gets better when they move out of LGBT. And it, But again, it still doesn't solve the chicken and egg issue of which drives which, right? I, I suppose, look, it's, um, 
this is really difficult. <laughs> <Right>. but, but, <laughs> but this is such tricky uh, material. Uh, but but have we? All I'll say is, ha- have we not buried the lead in terms of you know in what 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 all this focus on LGBT, even all of the. I mean, on, on the on the hierarchy of needs, if someone has anxiety issues and depression and mental, I mean. I don't care what you do with your with your genitals. Like let's let's we'll fi- you can do whatever you want. Like let's figure out all of the other stuff first. I mean, don't don't you think that this is probably a better uh, way to spend our re- time and resources? Well, you mean you try to address the mental health issue Absolutely. at first? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I just think that the culture emphasize you know the, the culture that we're in um, emphasizes affirmation. Of people who express victimhood and fragility, so it's it's a sort of uh, very attuned to victimhood around certain totemic identities, particularly historically marginalized race, gender, and sexuality groups. Much less so things like class or you know appearance or low IQ or those things don't seem to get much sympathy. But uh, anything around race, gender, sexuality. If you key into that, you get a certain number of victimhood points, and in a victimhood culture, that is grants you a certain esteem, a certain moral power. So I do think the culture is encouraging, very much encouraging people to identify in this way. Um, and it, at the same time, also, there is an earlier kind of what I would call modernist culture that emphasizes the new and the different, the transgressive. So being something boring, like heterosexual, is not prized as much as being something interesting, new and different, such as bisexual. And so even if you aren't particularly political, I think there's also a certain pressure in the youth culture uh, to be new and different and not to be the same as, as everyone else. So I, so I think the combination of these things is really what's behind this. Well, what, what liberals might say about this explosion of people identifying as LGBTQ is that you know society has changed to a point now where people are more comfortable sharing their identity and and that there was always this many LGBTQs out there. What what would you say to that that sort of an argument? Well, I think that uh, yeah, I think that is one argument, right? That that in fact it's all about the relaxation of of prejudice and therefore the the true or authentic uh, is coming out. But of course, the problem with that is in a way. Um, that stat that I gave you on same-sex behavior, where actually, if people were being true to their actual sexual behavior, we'd have much lower LGBT identification. Um, and if you wanted to even go social justice on it, you could say, oh, well, these people are appropriating, <laughs> uh, culturally appropriating an identity of somebody else. Um, and so I actually don't think it is a true reflection of what's going on. The other thing is, um, it, you know, the, the storyline of, you know, for example, the relationship between mental health and LGBT identification, there, there was a study in uh, a, a major high school study, and I'm trying to remember the state that it was conducted in, I think it was Wisconsin, that showed that the link between um, reporting a mental health problem and reporting that you're LGBT has increased in strength, not decreased, at a time when undoubtedly toleration of LGBT has expanded tremendously. We have, you know, in the U.S. there was a, an anti-same-sex marriage pro- pro- uh, proposition that passed in California, Proposition 8 in 2008, I think it was. Um, you know, attitudes on homosexuality have liberalized hugely. And at the same time, we see correlation between 
being LGBT and reporting poor mental health rising. So it simply doesn't match the data. What would match the data actually, I think, better is that uh, either people that are mentally ill are gravitating towards LGBT identification, and there are some common psychological reasons for that. Uh, so certain personality types, high neuroticism and openness, <coughs> are <coughs> going to be drawn to three things. One is um, anxiety and depression. Second is LGBT identification. The third is being very left-wing. Those three things go together. That, to my mind, is a better match with the data than the claim somehow that, uh, oh, well, there's still a lot of prejudice out there, and somehow that prejudice has gone down. If that prejudice had gone down, you would expect LGBT people to be reporting less, fewer mental health issues, not more mental health issues. And in fact, we've seen... Well, you've, we've talked about the idea that... Um you know, uh, very liberal Americans, twice as likely as others to experience these problems. 27% of young Americans with anxiety or depression were LGBT in 2021. So we've talked about that. This is fascinating as well. Add this in. College students majoring in the social sciences and humanities are about 10 points more LGBT than those in STEM. Meanwhile, 52% of students taking highly political majors, such as race or gender studies, identify as LGBT compared with 25% uh, among uh, students overall. This makes me really worried, uh, Eric, that my kid is eventually going to tell me that they are going into the humanities. Um, uh, and not because of, the, not because of their, 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 their uh, you know, their sexuality or whatever, but because they're going to be deeply uh, unhappy by the sounds of it. Um, what can I get her to study to make her not an anxiety-ridden <laughs> depressive who says she's bi but isn't? Well, I think the first to put your mind at ease a little bit is, is for the most part, I don't think university and the content of these courses really does change people's identities and sexuality all that much. I think, however, that those sorts of people, part of this is about correlation. So very left-wing people are going into the grievance studies disciplines, for example, very left-wing people tend to have quite very high LGBT identification. That's a lot of what's driving this, right? So it's not so much what they're learning. It's not really what they're learning. Now, having said that, there are, of course, certain corners like gender studies. You may or may not have heard of this term, political lesbianism. Uh, this was sort of... Excuse me? <laughs> Say that. Excuse me, Eric. I do a podcast on uh, this on this stuff, and I've never heard that. Explain it. Well, please. well, this, this is kind of a, a strand of radical feminism that, that kind of was arguing that, you know, essentially heterosexual sex is in some way exploitative and domineering, and therefore, you know, essentially you have... If you're not a lesbian, then you're not a true feminist, right? So, so there's there's a certain pressure on people who are in these sort of far-left feminist milieus to be lesbians, right? Um, and so that, again, is a good illustration of where, so you will get this, I mean, political lesbianism was a strand of feminism. You know, to be a proper feminist, you must be a lesbian. So that that's just kind of an, an extreme illustration of how politics can affect and alter sexuality, particularly among, say, young women where, you know, to some degree there's fluidity there in those early years. Um, but yeah, I would certainly say in these sort of elite education spaces that politics is a, is a big factor. It absolutely is. It's, it sounds a little bit like Nixium. 
You know that. Uh, <laughs> the cult. Do, do, do you know? Do you know this? Uh, no, the cult. The, oh no, <laughs> I haven't heard it. <laughs> okay. uh, well, it's you're too busy doing. Oh, well, stuff I thought you were talking age. about that new anti-weight uh, gain drug, but no, that's something else. <laughs> that is something else. This is a, you, uh, Nixium is a a sort of a sex cult that was in the U.S. Uh, one of the girls from Smallville was involved, and basically it was. You know, this run by the usual charismatic guy, and he convinced all of them, as well as improving their lives, to get naked and brand each other and do do creepy stuff. So I think that it just sounds to me, <laughs> when you say you know stuff like political lesbianism, that, that it sounds like it was it was concocted by a, a, a clever cult leader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I really don't think in this in this case I think it's just raw ideology that was driving it, um, and and still probably. You know, still is driving it. Yeah, no, I, I don't think it's anything like that coordinated. <laughs> well, let's change direction slightly. You you co-authored a, a study titled "School Choice Is Not Enough: The Impact of Critical Social Justice Ideology in American Education." Uh, it, it's both comprehensive and quite alarming. But before we dive in, perhaps we can talk about the features of critical social justice theory, which you you outline at the start. I'll, I'll just reel off a few to get your reactions. Uh, a focus on extreme expressions, for example, cancer culture, reactions to supposed microaggressions, uh, a socialist concentration on inequity, hierarchy and power, the primacy of race, gender and sexual uh, inequalities over material or psychological forms of inequity. Um, a focus on unmeasurable and unfalsifiable structures of oppression that uh, purportedly advantage whites, males or heterosexuals and disadvantage racial minorities, women and sexual minorities. There's, there's a whole list here. So maybe you can uh, run us through through some of that. Yeah, I mean, really at the core of this critical, critical social justice is, first of all, the holy trinity, race, gender, sexuality. Uh, but secondly, this question of, it's a form of socialism, a form of uh, egalitarianism. So any disparity between black and white, let's say in educational attainment or income or women and men uh, in terms of positions uh, on boards or as CEOs, whatever, it ha whatever your metric happens to be, uh, if there's any inequality compared to the population, that can only be explained by discrimination. That's sort of lesson one, really. And that's the sort of foundation of all of this theory. So we're not going to look at, you know, different forms of culture that maybe um, gypsy and Irish travelers and Jews might not have the same attitudes towards saving and book learning. No, that's, we're going to just pretend that's not an issue. And we're only going to look at uh, discrimination. Now, if we can't find direct racial attitudes, uh, we're going to posit this shadowy structural thing, which is like a matrix, a bit, sort of a bit like the matrix. You can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't measure it, but somehow you've got to just trust that it's there because how else can you explain disparities even as, you know, clearly traditional measures of racial prejudice, like saying you don't want to live next to a black person or marry them have all gone down. So, and an intermarriage has gone up. So, Ordinary individual measures of, of racism, it's pretty tough to make that argument that that's gotten worse. So you have to resort to, okay, well, it's just retreated into the shadows, into these structures, so-called structures. So, yeah, that is really what kind of underlies all of this, whether it be the radical 
feminism or gender ideology or the critical race theory. It's all based on there is an equality between groups and therefore there is some kind of discrimination. Um, and in order to sort of attack that, we're going to have to do a number of different things. One thing might be racial preferences and affirmative action, getting rid of standardized tests, whatever it takes to have equal outcomes through social engineering. Another might be, well, um, there's this issue of harm, emotional harm and emotional trauma and emotional safety. If somebody says anybody can make it in America, you know, clearly that's got to be racist because we know there's systemic discrimination and that's clearly denying some kind of systemic racism is equal that, therefore that must be racism if you use Ibram X. Kendi's logic. So it's all this kind of pseudoscientific, um, really conspiracy theory in a way. I mean, something like critical race theory is essentially not that dissimilar from the Jews are running the world, which is why they have, were disproportionately represented in good positions. Well, it's the whites are running the world and um, there's also a kind of associated blood libel, you know, Whites are responsible for everything. They've got all their advantages because of all the Ill, ills their ancestors visited uh, on minorities and therefore they benefit from white privilege and they're reproducing subconsciously somehow this matrix of structural oppression. We may not be able to measure it, but boy, it's there. Uh, so these kind of shadowy pseudoscientific theories have now entered in, in a big way into diversity training in organizations, but also into... Uh, critical race theory and uh, radical gender ideology in the classroom uh, in a big way. And I think they've come in, they're coming in in Britain, but uh, in the U.S. They're, they're, they've reached saturation point now. Um, and that's really what the study shows. And I was struck by the distinction you made in the preamble between high critical social justice theory and what you call applied uh, critical social justice theory, which I think is a very interesting distinction to make um i think i know why you made uh, the distinction but maybe tell us why you put that in yeah i mean there is a genre of academic high theory called critical race theory which uh begins really with the writing of derrick bell in in legal theory in the 1970s where he's sort of suggesting that you know lurking beneath the surface of classical liberal judicial decisions legal judgments is somehow a, a decision to sort of pursue certain forms of sentencing, certain lines of inquiry, certain interpretations of the law rather than others. Now, I think that's a useful critique. One can evaluate that. I would still say that this is probably wrong, but still it's worth talking about it in academic setting. We then move into, um, we then move into, as these ideas migrate into sociology and other disciplines, I think they get a little bit crazier. And then as they then migrate into applied, you know, uh, diversity training bureauc bureaucracies and uh, diversity training sessions, um, they then are sort of boiled down into bite-sized concepts like white privilege, white supremacy, uh, unconscious bias, um, which are easier to sort of apply in a quick one-hour training session or manual or website. It's kind of a dumbed down version, but very much, I think, definitely continuous with that high theory. This idea that this is somehow a perversion of that glorious, pristine academic critical race theory is not true. They are both stemming from the same sort of grievance framework. It's just that the 
dumbed-down, bite-sized concepts are are in some ways seen as cruder, um, and perhaps they are just. But I think they are. They do represent that same logic, just pushed to an extreme. And an, an example of, of of an applied, uh, uh, you know, critical social justice uh, theory in a, in a classroom setting might be, you know, div- literally dividing the class by race and having one side of the class, um, you know, apologize to the other right, publicly or something like that, or or it, these are the t- or getting, you know, you know. T- teaching white privilege uh, uh, as an uncontested idea. Exactly, yeah. Saying that, you know, people who look like people who did bad things to other people who look like people who are... I mean, that is really the level we're getting to. Uh, It doesn't even matter... Not that this is totally irrelevant, but whether these people are descended from the people who did those things is is irrelevant. You could be a kind of a a recent Romanian immigrant to the southern United States, and, you know, but it doesn't matter. I mean, essentially, it's, just, it's about applying crude racial blood guilt and where you have uh, oppressors and oppressed, uh, getting people to sort of uh, separate in a classroom or line up, you know, take three spe- steps forward if you're white and you're this and you're that. You know, these sorts of very crude identity-based cultural socialist uh, applications of critical race and gender theory is really what we're seeing expressed uh, in classrooms. Now, of course, there are more extreme and less extreme examples of this. <laughs> Chris Rufo, who, of course, has dragged out some of the most egregious examples. Um, but, but yeah, that, that's an illustration of how these things get applied. And you get these kind of lobbies and, and um, diversity providers, often private sector, often making a lot of money through diversity training or, or providing these classes in schools who, who more or less come up with a playbook and peddle this stuff and, and often take quite an aggressive tone of shaming uh, white students uh, and more or less painting minority, particularly black students, as victims, um, all of which has a whole series of negative effects, some of which I uncovered in the report. But it's weird. You could just, as a, I mean, this is all obvious stuff, but you could be, um, you could be a Bosnian immigrant. You could be you could be f- fleeing from you know your family could have been killed in a war, and you'd be sitting there and you, you could be singled out and said anyway, the essay is called yes. My White Privilege. <laughs> so begin yeah, yeah. Pe- begin now. Well, they're always shifting goalposts, right? So you know you start off with oh well your your ancestors got advantages out of their ancestors, and so that that now affects who's got wealth now, and 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 that's a debate, and I think the evidence for that's quite quite weak, but even if you were to accept that, you then move to a situation, well, yeah, you have this Bosnian immigrant, right, who, who obviously has no, can't have an ancestral connection. Well, yeah, but you then benefit from the structural privileges, right? So you can you can always work the identity or the African, you know, Nigerian immigrant to, you know, who has no connection to slavery. Well, yeah, but, you know, they are also being disadvantaged by this structure. You can always play around, but of course, if the facts don't work, like, oh, the Nigerians are making more money than the white Americans, you then tweak, you move the goalposts again, you say, ah, oh, well, yeah, you see, they don't have the trauma of having, you know. So you can always play around with these things in order to, to make the, the, the facts fit the theory. Now, is, is this study a, a direct answer to, to the charge we've been hearing for a while now that, that critical race theory is not being taught in US schools? Yeah, I, and, and I think, so you, you got this from, from the teachers' unions, you get this from the, 
celebrities like Whoopi Goldberg, you know, this isn't being taught. Why? Because Derek Bell is not being taught in, in a grade 10 classroom. I mean, it's, it's the most disingenuous and ridiculous game, right? So it's a bit like a shell game, whereas what's on the shell might be Derek Bell, but what's underneath is sort of these concepts like shaming you for your white privilege. Um, and they say, hey, we're not teaching the Derek Bell. Uh, yeah, I, I think this was a, the first thing here was to sort of take the temperature of, uh, you know, what is the level of this stuff? So we have a random draw, 1,500, 18 to 20 year olds uh, in the U.S. Ask them what they were taught in school. How many of these concepts have you heard from a teacher or some other adult in school? Uh, we got 93%, pretty much saturation level in terms of those who had heard at least one of these, one of six concepts. So 90% for um, critical race theory concepts, 74% for the radical gender theory, stuff like patriarchy or gender not related to sex. Uh, and so you can't, you can't look at those numbers and deny that this is massive. This is affecting millions of students, not just a few examples that, that Chris Rufo happens to have dragged out. Um, and, and this is one of the more dishonest. I don't understand whether these people are just being dishonest or whether they truly believe somehow that, you know, because they're not teaching high critical theory, they can't be accused of teaching theory. So uh, either way, I think it's largely dishonesty. But. Look, that's an interesting point. Um, because I, uh, I've been engaging with this, this study, and I'm trying to be a bit more charitable, uh, and, and to think and to go, okay, what is the I mean, I don't have a I'm not in their hearts and minds. But I, I genuinely want to understand the, the, the perspective of someone who thinks uh, it's okay you know, to teach these these concepts and, you know, and to put their finger on the scale, uh, so to speak. Well, I think they believe that by inducing white guilt in pupils that that will somehow lead to magically positive social change. And actually, to some degree, they're right, right? I mean, if you look at the study, I mean, one of the really dramatic findings is just how effective this is. You know, if we compare students who have had no critical social justice exposure to those that have had um, the maximum exposure of, say, six concepts. You know, support for racial preferences, i.e. affirmative action, doubles. White guilt doubles. Um, you know, we get an increase in the share who think that the U.S. is built on stolen land and people are living on the houses they're living in and everything isn't stolen. Well, that's gone from something like 40% to something like 70%. So there's no question that this really does change the views of students, according to the study. So if that's your goal, if you think that more affirmative action, more white guilt, um, and, and more sort of social engineering to redress inequalities is going to fix these inequalities, then yeah, that makes sense to you. The problem, of course, as I would point out, is I think actually affirmative action is damaging, you know, damaging to minorities creates an enormous amount of resentment because it violates the the idea of equal treatment under the law, you know, and then in addition, as we we see in the study, I mean, one of the things that this this sort of thing does is it introduces a lot of fear in the classroom, and so you saw that the proportion of kids who say that they are fear of being expelled, disciplined, or shamed for expressing their opinion goes from twenty seven percent to sixty eight percent between those who, who have no exposure to critical social justice and those who get the maximum six concepts. So it really introduces a chilling 
on speech in the classroom. And as a result of that, partly it increases the fear of criticizing a black schoolmate. That goes from 29 to 43% uh, from minimum to maximum exposure. And so black schoolmates who you know say something or, or are doing something in their work that they need, they could benefit from a classmate saying, actually, maybe this wasn't quite right or whatever, those classmates are now going to be reluctant to do that. That is, again, going to retard, it's going to hold back the development of those black students. And we see the same thing, by the way, diversity training in, in companies, which leads to an increase in fear, a decrease in willingness to criticize a black workmate. Again, those black workmates aren't getting the feedback that they need to progress within an organization. So in all of these ways, actually, uh, even if, and I don't actually think this is the main motivation, but if your main motivation was to help, uh, you know, minorities move ahead and get ahead, um, this is actually going in the opposite direction, while at the same time fueling resentment. Did, did your study look into whether or not uh, there was an alternative viewpoint being presented to, to sort of uh, show the other side of some of these, uh, some of these concepts? Yeah, definitely. And this is sort of another aspect uh, of this is that these concepts are being taught as truth, as fact. So we asked, you know, first of all, whether they'd heard any of, the, any of these concepts and whether they were uh, presented as the only alternative or as whether there were other alternatives presented. And then we asked them, well, were there other alternatives presented that were respectable or other alternatives presented that were said to be not respectable? And between those who said there were no other viewpoints presented and there were other viewpoints presented but they were uh, mentioned as being not respectable that was about seven out of ten uh, so essentially in seven out of ten cases the only respectable truth being presented was the critical race perspective um, so yeah this is very much indoctrination in a way in these pseudoscientific quasi-conspiracy theory concepts um, and actually, that's against the law in Britain, certainly in Britain, where I got the same results. Seven in ten said these were taught as truth. Uh, Britain has a very clear law against uh, political indoctrination in class. Now, the, the way they get around this is they say, oh, no, this is just anti-racism. That's a consensus value. It's like being against stealing. You're against racism. Oh, and by the way, we're not going to mention how we define racism, which is, oh, any kind of inequality equals racism <laughs> of outcome. Um, and uh, so that's a sort of sneaky way in which, uh, you know, those who advocate for this simply sidestep the law. Really, the, where this is going to next and where, where we, the discussion might be going to next is some of the politics around critical race theory and the measures now being brought in to address it. Um, because there's so much deception on the part of those who are bringing it in. We're trying to suggest that no, this is just uh, you know anti-racism, which we can all get behind. This is all diversity, equity, and inclusion. Nice, warm, fuzzy words. How can you be against that unless you're a fascist? Uh, and this is the kind of deceptive way in which the proponents try and introduce this into the system under the radar. Uh, but I think now, especially in the U.S where the conservative forces are not getting on top of this, and we're starting to see some quite, uh, well, some heated developments, let's put it that way, in the politics. Well, before we get into the recommendations, but just one little point I, I was thinking about, um, you know, what the, an educator might say, and 
you know, they might say, how do we agree upon what is true? You know, they, they might say, what if I want to teach Matthew Desmond's 1619 Project essay to my students? And here's a little quote from, from, from that piece. When an accountant depreciates an asset to save on taxes, or when a mid-level manager spends an afternoon filling in rows and columns on an Excel spreadsheet, they are repeating business procedures whose roots twist back to slave labor camps. Close quote. <laughs> See, and I would tell my students, Excel is slavery. We use Excel. We are slavers. That has the ring of truth to me. What's the problem? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, other than the than the sort of faulty logic, right? I mean, my my view on this is that if you want to, you know, if you could trust teachers, it, most teachers are fine, by the way. But the ones who get into teaching this stuff or who come in from the outside uh, to to conduct seminars on this are going to be activists. So if we could trust them to do. Ibram X. Kendi followed by John McWhorter and give a solid accounting of both. I think that would be the, the optimum in a way. <laughs> but the problem is, practically speaking, it's very hard to envision that occurring right now. And therefore, it is probably better uh, to go for a critical race theory ban. I mean, and as much as that goes against my desire for academic freedom, I would support that at the K to 12, the, the, the school level, not in universities, but in schools where you've got a captive audience where we simply can't trust uh, the schools, unfortunately, to deliver a kind of unbiased, politically impartial product in this highly politicized area. I think if it was sort of something that was heavily inspected, if you had a very powerful inspection regime and whistleblowing regime that was right on top of everything that was being taught, uh, then maybe we could talk about having, you know, both sides delivered. Yeah, but it, would be, <laughs> it would be, it would be the, uh, the nuclear weapons, uh, inspectors. Yeah. They, they come in, they come in and they would have hidden it all, you know, and, right. and they'd just get put on a show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, maybe you, I think it's possible that we can get to a point where curriculum between curriculum transparency, where materials are made available, uh, between a very, very fine-grained guidance to inspectors and a much more detailed inspection regime where there was proper political control and oversight of the inspectorate um, and parental whistleblowing, you know, maybe we could triangulate into a position where, you know, you could have uh, an open debate between these two sides. I mean, that is probably the ideal. Uh, unfortunately, I think where we are now with the products of the education schools with the ingrained resistance from the teachers' unions, I just don't see that that's going to be possible in anything like um, the next decade or so. And that is one of the reasons why I would say in schools, CRT bans are entirely appropriate, very sort of uh, top-down, politically directed management of the curriculum is appropriate as well. Of course, we have to have a debate over, you know, what is the balance of pride and shame we want in the history teaching, you know, and I think that's the right debate to be having. But I think it's simply unbalanced right now and has to be rebalanced towards something which is a little bit more politically neutral. Well, you're, you're touching on it right now, but but maybe you could elaborate a bit more on what, what your recommendations for governments and lawmakers uh, would be. Yeah, so I think that um, the CRT, critical race theory bans we've seen in places like Florida, uh, Virginia, I think 22 states are now, now have legislation on the books. Um, I think... CRT bans in schools are entirely appropriate. Um, I also, however, I don't think they're appropriate for universities. So Ron DeSantis's 
new uh, bill for Florida, the Florida University public university system. I think he is goes too far to bridges academic freedom by prescribing what should be taught in the curriculum. Um, I don't think you should be doing that at university level where people are free to choose. There are electives. I think it's certainly fine to be able to say, well, any anything that's teaching critical race theory needs to be flagged with a kind of cigarette warning label, and even to defund those particular courses, but not to ban them. So universities can still cross-subsidize them, but they're going to be disincentivized from running too many of them. I think that's sort of the, where I would tend to go on this. But in schools, definitely, I think, also in terms of the the history and civics curriculum, I think there's definitely a role for uh, for governments to set uh, that curriculum and to steer it away from the sort of critical social justice approach that has really been pushed. And actually, there's a history of this going back really to the 1980s, where educators and radical educators have been taking the lead. And nobody's actually standing up to these people, because if you stand up to somebody who says they're working in the name of anti-racism, you kind of look like a racist. So, and with, with that taboo in place, no one's willing to stick their head above the parapet. And so this whole thing is just metastasized and nobody stopped this train. Initially, conservatives, you can go back to Reagan and his attempts to introduce new history standards. They trusted the education establishment and they basically were taken for a ride. I don't think that's going to happen again. I think now that the right has kind of learned that you cannot trust these people and you're going to have to be interventionists, have the stamina to essentially um, you know, put your thumb on the scale throughout the whole process just to ensure you've got some kind of impartiality. I don't want to go be, be too conspiratorial, Eric, but I've, it does feel like there's a deep state, you know, like that the moment you, an educational deep state, that the moment you, 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 can't, you would come in and say, all right, uh, you know, we want to just have a little bit of context. How about instead of, you know, talking endlessly about uh, fascism, which is important, why don't we talk about you know, let's just say the word gulag, you know, and, 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 and go into some of that stuff. I feel like the the Morlocks would just come out of the ground and just like, I don't know, <laughs> like you would you would just never get it done. I don't know. I I kind of am more optimistic than that. I think there is some evidence that, that where this has been done in the past, um, it has worked during, during the period when it's been applied. I mean, there was a period in... Canadian province of Ontario, where conservative government came in and scrapped a whole bunch of initiatives, sort of pseudo-critical race theory initiatives. This was back in the 90s. Um, started teaching about communism in schools. I think it can be done. And I think the combination of very specific legislation plus the threat of lawsuits for violation, the threat of being fired, will be enough to actually introduce this discipline in the schools. It's going to take applied and sustained political pressure, making sure you've got a media campaign, you're naming and shaming violators. All of that will definitely have the desired effect, I believe. <laughs> I don't believe, I mean, of course, there's going to be attempts to evade, but I also think with the right pressure, it's got, but this, of course, means that this issue is going to have to become much more of a focus for right of center parties. They can't just sort of say a few sound bites like, Oh, uh, black armband version of history. I think that was in Australia where, where, where they were That's talking right. about sex. Yes. But, but without actually following through and making sure the, that the curriculum changes as, and is being applied differently in schools. You've got to teach about the excesses of utopianism. So the gulags, maybe 1984 has to be taught. You need to 
I think also teach about non-European pre-colonial societies, genocides and slaveries that occurred in the non-European world in order to better contextualize. I think a lot of students, for example, in, in places like Australia and Canada still have this very sort of fairy tale view of what indigenous societies were like that is completely divorced from what the actual reality was. And I think if they understood the reality better, they would have a different view then of the Western settlers and colonizers as, as maybe this being a much more mixed picture. But right now there's that kind of noble savage view uh, of the pre-colonial past. I think that's again something that needs to be changed within the education system. And in fact, a lot of academics you know, the, and teachers who are, they sincerely believe they're on the right side of history. They don't see themselves as biased because they've come up through this bubble where they where their version of history has been airbrushed and curated. So nothing about, you know, non-European uh, genocides and slavery, nothing about, you know, the, the death rate in these uh, societies that existed before the Europeans arrived. Um, and because of that, they, they're only focusing on the sins of one group and not the sins of other groups. So I think, yeah, there's a wholesale change that I, need, I think needs to happen uh, in the curriculum. And that has to be a much bigger priority for conservative parties. Well, it seems like you're you're advocating for for I guess a top down approach to to combat this. But I just wonder uh, how much of an appetite amongst elites is there for uh, pushing back against some of this stuff? Because I, I guess if you think about you know big big tech billionaires like like uh, Steve Bezos or or others who who would rather you. Uh, turn yourself into knots over this critical race theory stuff and other social justice issues rather than looking at workers' conditions, you know, at the Amazon factory, for instance. You know, I mean, what, what, what's the appetite like amongst the, 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 the elite class and the, and the elite political class to, to, to get some of this done? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of issues there. I mean, there's no question that these big corporates are engaged in, you know, trying to drive down workers' wages and offshore and do all of these things. And we can have a debate over... To what extent is that fair or not fair? And um, you know, I think there should be attention, uh, more attention paid to those conditions, right? And, and, and particularly in the overseas factories in these companies. Um, do I think Bezos and others are using this as a divide and rule tactic? I actually am less convinced by those self-interested based arguments. I think there's a lot of genuine belief. This is much more like COVID. It's like a, a virus, except it's a mind virus, and it's transmitted, and sometimes it hits a super spreader, uh, like a school or a university or corporation. I, I think once this is established as a prestige belief system, then yes, there is a, uh, you know, a self-interested motivation if you want to keep a job in a corporation, if you want to get promoted to, to, you know, to push this stuff. But what's more important, I think, is to get at that, that viral spread from below. Um, now, you asked about, you know, top-down approaches versus bottom-up, and this is the big debate, right? I mean, you've seen there's a debate between Ron DeSantis and Chris Rufo on the one hand and the intellectual dark web, particularly liberals on the other, and, and I actually think that there's room for both here. So there is room for a kind of DeSantis state-led approach, I think, is the only way really to bring sunlight into these closed organizations like universities. Um, which are being funded on the taxpayer's dime. At the same time, we also need the podcast space. We need the online space. That is the only way we're going to actually win the battle of ideas because 
in the long run, if you lose the battle of ideas, you can have the best laws in the world. Ultimately, they're just going to be unpicked uh, because you've lost the battle of ideas. So we've got to have both. We've got to have the persuasion, the long game, and we also need the sort of short-term relief, uh, which comes from this legislation. Don't you think it, 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 that's a fascinating uh, uh, summary of, of what we need? I, and I agree that it needs to be a full court press because <laughs> right. there's there's a section of the of yeah the podcast class and the as you say the intellectual dark web or some of those figures who have taken exception to some of Chris Rufo's tactics over time. They might have liked it initially, maybe, but then over time they haven't liked. You know, could be anything from him, you know, being very transparent about trying to put a label on critical race theory and saying we need to make it uh, low status, you know, things like that, or him going as hard as he as he does. But I mean, don't we need in your gang of uh, in your crew? Don't you need kind of like the wild bunch? Don't you need a guy who's who is a brawler like that as well as everyone else? Yeah, I think you're right, and I think you need people who are, let's say, pushing the envelope too far. And, I mean, obviously you need to be able to call out when they do push it too far, and I think some of the DeSantis reforms on abolishing tenure, I think it's a terrible idea. I mean, but, um, yeah, I think just as you have excess on the left, you can have excess on the right. I do think those of us who who are trying to, to push for an optimum, you know, it is incumbent on us to point out those excesses. But... Yeah, you're right. It is a sort of it's a mixed economy. We need a, a number of different actors. Um, I don't think you know. I do think some of you know each side has been a bit too harsh on each other. I do think the intellectual dark web their critiques of Rufo, I think, go too far. I think instead of saying okay, we disagree with some of these things, but we agree with others, a lot of the intellectual dark web liberals are classical liberals who think you know limited government more state is always bad. And I think that's quite naive in the sense that we're dealing with a three-tier system where you have individual citizens, institutions in the middle, and then the government. Now, yes, government can oppress individuals. That's happened, you know, in many places, in, in Turkey and Russia and whatever. Um, that's very common in history. But I think if we ignore the oppression that can come out of that institutional layer, an oppression which means the government needs to step in, um, you know, that is something that has occurred as well in history. You, you think of the Red Guards in Mao's China. Yes, they had some backing from Mao, but they were largely taking their own initiative. Or, And this was kind of an insight that Thomas Hobbes, uh, the English uh, political philosopher, had, which is that when people's freedom is being threatened by private violence or Pri you know, the, the analogous analogy today is private censorship from tech firms or institutions or organizations. An elected transparent government under media scrutiny is in a way, and can be a very effective instrument in limiting the capacity of these institutions to oppress individuals. It's a bit like if there's a gang outside my house and won't let me out of my house, I need the police, i.e. the state, to come in and arrest those people so I have my freedom back. That Hobbesian view of liberalism, I think, has been lost in a lot of the intellectual dark web analyses. Uh, and so I think it's a little bit too one-dimensional. Now, equally, of course, you know, on the side of Chris Rufo, I do think there can be the tendency to say, we're going to get some of our own back here. We're going to tell universities who they can hire, who they can teach. I think that goes too far as well. We should be able to sort of call out the excesses on both sides. Uh, but I do think we need the mixed economy. It's really tempting to just 
to just once you get that the, the foothold to just go now you get down and walk like a dog. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Eric, we're we're very mindful of your time, so so we only have uh, perhaps one question left. Um, I've I've heard you say that that Canada leads the way in terms of wokeness. Uh, it seems to have infiltrated throughout all the major institutions. And, and one manifestation that, that has really shocked me has been the euthanasia legislation in Canada. It, it's just become way too easy to commit suicide with the state's help over there. And uh, we're hearing about streams of homeless people queuing up to receive, as my vet calls it, the green dream, uh, just to escape their homelessness, uh, which is dystopian and, and awful. Um, if, if, if other Western countries are, are headed in Canada's direction, is this irreverence for human life what we in the West have to look forward to? Well, I haven't, I haven't followed very closely the exact contours of the euthanasia law in Canada. I mean, my concerns there are much more around what's being taught in schools, for example, the naked racial discrimination that's occurring in universities where uh, both in terms of minority-only spaces, but minority-only jobs, minority-only fellowships, the absolute insanity around the residential schools question. Um, it is lies built on lies built on lies, and, and nobody, including the right-of-center party, is willing to call out the fact that, that the emperor has no clothes, right? This complete nonsense of these mass graves. I mean, there's not, nothing exists. Not only that, even, even on the residential schools question. Um, so much nonsense has been, uh, you know, you're essentially forced to bow your head. So it's much, I'm much more concerned about the climate of, of intense political correctness um, around anything to do with race, gender, and sexuality, which is just permeating the school, every institution, a, an inability really to even discuss, you know, mass migration levels, um, to discuss these questions. That's where the difference between the, the U.S. or Britain and Canada is very glaring is that in the U.S. and Britain, you have an opposition. In Canada, you really don't to much of this. I mean, Jordan Peterson is probably the opposition. He's on line. Um, and I don't know what it's like. I'd be interested in Australia, too, which I think is, is – Australia and New Zealand, I think, are probably quite similar to Canada in many ways. And so I would have thought might be more exposed – uh, than you know in the U.S. and Britain, where there's more, where there's a stronger opposition, for example. Um, I don't know what your thoughts would be on that. We're experiencing very similar stuff to to Canada because we're in similar positions in the Commonwealth. So, you know, and I'm just presenting these things neutrally now. Uh, we've got increasing uh, sort of welcome to country, acknowledgement to country. Almost that it, it's gone from you know special events to now at the beginning of most meetings and things like that. And then we've got you know, our, our uh, broadcaster in Australia, the ABC, is is just that is as woke as the the Can CBC, Canadian equivalent, yeah. and yeah, yeah and yeah. and so they, I would say, they do active propaganda, right. um, and and fringe all the fringe stuff that we've talked about, all of the contentious fringe stuff, they just say it. Um, every year we have this really toxic debate, um, this teardown debate about Australia Day on the 26th of January, uh, which is just getting more and more ridiculous. In terms of the opposition, uh, you know, I guess it sounds like we've got more of an opposition to that, to this than um, some of this stuff than, than Canada, at least, the, the, you know, and we, some of the Liberals the on, of the Liberal Party have, you know, really uh, planted their feet and gone against it. But we, we, we don't have a Ron DeSantis, though. <laughs> 
No, 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 we don't. But because once you, once you decide to go against this stuff, it's a lifestyle. Like you are 24-7 dealing with people slamming you, calling you a racist, calling you all the... Like, you know, I even saw a Senate estimates the other day where someone was, you know, uh, they asked a controversial question, but a question that needs to be asked because we've got a referendum coming up about an Indigenous voice to Parliament, which is a... Th- well, it's not a third chamber, but it's like a advisory body that we're going to go to a... Uh, change the constitution and do like it's a big deal it's a huge deal and a senate a senator in a senate estimates things just said i'd like to know you know how we're judging you know how is someone is indigenous or not it's just a you know question of that someone's got to ask right i mean i i I just it's a boring old senate thing and and he was basically called a racist by the by the um his opposing um the side like like you know over and over like they just said that is borderline racist that is bore like in other words the closest they could get to saying you're an outright racist so that's pretty much what you're up against that's the life you're going to live if you come out against anything yeah exactly and and you won't be invited to cocktail parties you won't have that easy life and you know this is really the social penalties are at the core of this right and yet again i i and more and more i'm coming to the view that the, the, the anti-racism taboo which develops in the mid-60s in the U.S. and then ultimately spreads, uh, which in some ways is a good thing for blatant naked racism, but very quickly the scope of this thing expands to cover, you know, being against uh, high levels of immigration or or anything around the indigenous issue. It shuts down debate and and you're immediately toxic if you go against the orthodoxy. Um, Yeah, I mean, this is really what needs to be pushed against and rolled back. And probably I would suspect the average Australian doesn't really know much about what pre, uh, pre-European pre settlement Australia, in terms of the relationships between tribes, in terms of the violence. Certainly I know in New Zealand, um, you know, you had extermination campaigns between these different groups. I mean, none of that would probably be in the consciousness of the average person. And until that is in the consciousness, you're not going to get a balanced debate about Indigenous knowledge, about land acknowledgements, all these kinds of Quite ridiculous things. Um, it's so infantilizing, isn't it? The, 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 keeping it to just oh, they've got a, a a beautiful relationship with the land, and keeping it all all of like, isn't that offensive to them to say that they're not? You know what? Like, I mean, the most controversial thing would be to say that they were human and that they pretty much did everything that that everyone else did, which is yeah. You know, fight over stuff and, you know, have some wins, have some losses, uh, keep women down until, you know, until it was, you know, technology came around yeah. and a few other things. We changed our mind on that. I mean, I, I just think that, I mean, I, I will say I don't know what I'm talking about generally, but, but it's, <laughs> it's, just, it's just, I have to just preface that in case, because this is going to be clipped one day. Someone's going to say, you know, and then I won't be invited to the parties. Yet. Oh, I, I didn't know you were central to that circuit, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think these are the core questions, right, is, is, is trying to rebalance a little bit by providing that context. That's got to be central. And also kind of thinking about the centrality of race as the greatest social sin, racism, you know, trying to say, well, you know, so for example, the difference between insulting Muslims and insulting Hare Krishna or, or uh, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, there's an enormous difference morally, and yet probably there shouldn't be. Probably those things should be seen as much more similar. Um, and so I think we're probably going to need also a recalibration on the application of the racism taboo as well, just in order to draw some of this sacredness, this toxicity, and, and 
out of this debate in order so that we can be more rational uh, about these things. Well, Eric, uh, you've been so generous with your time. But just quickly, uh, we ask all of our guests this question. Uh, what are you reading right now? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I was just reading, um, well, two books. There's a book uh, by um, Nigel Bigger on colonialism, a moral reckoning, which I'm uh, partway through. Uh, I went to the book. You've added yourself as a problematic yeah. person. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just uh, went to the to the launch. Um, and then there's uh, a new book by my friend Matt Goodwin on Britain, uh, which is on, on it's, I think it's called sort of Voice and Virtue. I, I, I should have the title. It's just it's not yet released, but I have an advanced copy. So I'm, I was going to say, how did you get that book? We interviewed Matt. Yes. We didn't get the book. I don't get it. What's going yeah, on? Yeah, he, he handed it to me in person and it's a sort of advanced copy. So I'm kind of, kind of digging into that. Uh, definitely one to interview for your next uh, or one of your next podcasts. Well, uh, thanks very much, Eric. Uh, we'll see you uh, again in, sooner rather than later. I know it. Great. Thanks, John. Thanks, Ricky. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.